In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. He had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man all the people of all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthday, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of fasting, uh, feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and she will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside of the announcement sheet, you'll find an outline that you can use as we go through uh, uh, the text of Job. And it is, uh, if you've read it, and, and most of you have, you know that it is a, a book about suffering, and it's about grief, and it is a heavy book, one of the heavier books in the entire Bible. And uh, we really need to pray, as we, as we always do before uh, a sermon or before a message or before class, we, we need to ask God to bless us as we press our mind into this word. So I'm going to ask you to, uh, to bow your heads and join your hearts with me as we ask God to bless us in this study. Father, we stand on the precipice of, of, this, of this great book of wisdom. And we acknowledge, Father, that there is no wisdom that is outside of the reality of your presence in all of creation and in the lives of your people. We are thankful for this book and we're thankful for the weight that it places upon us, Father, the seriousness of living as disciples of your Son Jesus in this life. In all circumstances, when the rain comes and when the sun shines, that there will always be a profound trust and faith 
and love and worship in Your people. And we pray, Father, that as Alfred has, has, has already prayed for us, that You will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it this morning as, as we deal with the greatness of this message. The message of this, this, this principal book of wisdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all the church said, If you are visiting with us in 2014, we have dedicated ourselves from January to December studying every book of the Bible in order to know the Bible better and to know its story. And there's a phrase that we've been using every week to kind of guide us in this study. And it's up here on the on the screen. We can say it together. In fact, we've been saying it every week. We can kind of say it together as a church this morning. Say it with me. The Bible is not a collection of random stories, but one story about God, man, what went wrong, and what God is doing to put it back together. A couple of years ago, while Jordan was in college, he sent me this picture that's up on the screen that made me laugh out loud. And uh, I, I don't know because of the clarity of it if you can see it very well, but what we have here is, is a kiddo uh, in a pair of cowboy boots who is wearing a, a, an Iron Man mask. He is wearing Spider-Man pajamas, and he's wearing the Incredible Hulk fists. And uh, it's, <laughs> you know, this kid is, has become his own hybrid superhero. And it was the caption, though, that made me laugh out loud because the caption said this, I don't know what it is, but this kid is ready for it. <laughs> now, that's what the wisdom section of the Bible is all about, at least in one vein. In one vein, the Bible, the wisdom part of the Bible, is going to help us to get ready for what it is that comes next. And you know as well as I do, you don't have to live very long in this world to know that what comes next is sometimes tough and it's brutal. And sometimes it's breathtakingly painful and it is laced with never-ending grief. We live in a world where suffering comes as a surprise. We're living our life, or other people are living in life, a group of people are living their life, and the next thing you know, there is a, a jet airliner that is shot down over the Ukraine. Or the, the tragedy and the pain and the suffering comes at human beings in a continual flow. I mean, you've got the Palestinians and the Israelis going at each other. I mean, that 90-minute ceasefire that they had last week was kind of symbolic of the relationship that they have had for a lot of years. And sometimes that grief and that pain and that suffering and that tragedy comes not just as a surprise, and it doesn't just come continually, but sometimes it's incredibly personal. We find ourselves struggling with a personal loss or a personal setback or some kind of a personal tragedy. And the question that we ask ourselves is how are we going to make it through what's next when it's beyond us to even bear it. And that's why we need the book of Job. Let me give you three quick reasons that you can write down on your outline. The first is tragedy and suffering have invaded the world in which we live. Tragedy and suffering have invaded the world in which we live. The thorns and the thistles that we talked about all the way back at the very beginning of Genesis, the thorns and the thistles that make a part of the curse of Genesis chapter 3 have gone everywhere. It's in everything. And when you think about nature, nature is even affected by it. We have now earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes that, that bring their own kind of 
uh, uh, version of evil upon human beings and upon the planet. You have the thorns and the thistles that have even gone into the animal world. The Bible talks about one day the lambs and the lions are going to lie down together. Human infants and vipers will be able to be together without there being danger. And you know as well as I do, that's not the way that it is right now. And then for humans, I mean, there are more diseases and there is more versions of of meanness and more types of violence. That violence comes in more forms than we can even begin to name. The thorns and thistles are not just in, 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 in creation. The thorns and the thistles have gotten inside of us. And then number two, human suffering is not always explicable. We know what human suffering is. We know what tragedy is. It's just not always explicable. It's not always explained. Many times human suffering is is a mystery. Oz Guinness has really written a very good little book on, on evil called Unspeakable. And in it he has this quote. He says, and I quote, The mismatch between what we expect and what we encounter is so outrageous and the experience is so senseless that it strikes us as flagrantly unfair. End of quote. And what he, along with everyone else that has ever written or even thought about evil and and suffering and tragedy and personal pain, all of these things have said is that sometimes you do get an answer. Sometimes you do have information. You know why this thing has come, but a lot of times you don't. And sometimes you're not, you're not given the information. What you're left with is the pain and the tragedy and the hole that you feel in your being. And then thirdly, the wisdom of Job nudges us, pushes us, challenges us forward through the darkness. And it does it by answering a couple of questions like, where is God in the middle of this profound suffering that, that, that Job is going through? And, and how can Job get through this? How in the world is Job going to be able to stand all of this this, this devastation that has been brought upon the landscape of his life. Well, Job does it, the book of Job does it, in, it by taking us through three different scenes. The first is the, the prologue that's behind the scenes. And then there's the, the dialogues, or the dialogues that happen in public, and then there's the epilogue of future hope. So there's, there's a prologue, there's a dialogue, and there's an epilogue. Let's begin with that prologue behind the scenes. The first five verses of the book begin emphatically as a description of the life of Job. Job is righteous. The Bible makes no bones about it. Job is a righteous guy. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil. In verse 8, God gives one of the greatest compliments that you'll find in the Bible towards another human being. He says, there is nobody on this planet, on earth, in the world that is as righteous as Job. He is by himself. When it comes to the kind of faith and relationship that he and I have. He is singular and unique. And when you think about Proverbs and read through Proverbs, all of a sudden you realize Job and how he is described fits the template for the righteous person that's described in the book of Proverbs. He is the proverbial righteous man. But not only is he righteous, but he's also a husband and he's a father. Has a wife, has some kids, he has seven sons, has three daughters... And in the, the passage that Ed read for us just a minute ago, one of the things that is said about him is that he was, he was not just a father, but he was a father that was con- concerned about the spiritual state of his kids. 
he was concerned about the next generation of faith. And so every, probably every seven days, because the text says that on their day, a sign day, one of the sons would give a feast, family would show up, they would have a feast. And so probably about every seven days, Job is offering a sacrifice on behalf of his kids in case they blaspheme or curse the name of God. And not only was he a family man, but Job has incredible wealth. 7,000 sheep. 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels. 500 yoke of oxen. 500 female donkeys. What anybody would want with 500 donkeys is beyond me. And he has lots of employees. He is a guy that has, has a tremendous relationship with God. He has a tremendous faith. He's profound. He is the man of Proverbs. He is a family man and he is a wealthy man. And then all of a sudden, at the very beginning, verse 6, beginning of this book, the curtain is drawn back and a window is provided for us to look into the heavenlies. And what we read is that the angels, all of these, these the myriads of God's servants, have come on a certain day, on a special day, and have presented themselves to God. And Satan has come with them. And God is looking out on the angels. And He looks down and He sees Satan among them. And God asks Satan, where in the world have you been? And Satan says to God, that's exactly where I've been, on the planet, on earth, in the world. And I've been roaming it and walking upon it. And God says, I'm, I'm just wondering... What do you think of the unique, singular, great faithfulness of Job? And what Satan does here is really interesting. What Satan does here is what the serpent did in Genesis 3 in his conversation with Eve about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He offers this alternative interpretation. Did God really say to you that you cannot eat of this tree? Here in the first chapter of Job, Satan is doing the same thing. He's offering an alternative interpretation of Job to God. He says, if Job really fear God for nothing, he replied, have you not put a wall, a hedge around him in his household and everything that he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds spread throughout the land. But now you stretch out your hand and you strike everything he has and he will surely what? He will surely what, church? Curse you to your what? Face. Implied is this question that's just filled with tension. The question is, does Job really love God for God's sake? Or does he love God because of what he gets from God? Does he love God for God's sake and nothing else? Or does he love God for all of the stuff that God's given him? And so God permits Satan to strike everything around Job and not strike Job. Don't touch Job himself. And in just a matter of minutes, Job's world comes tumbling down. The wealth, all of that wealth, gone. The servants, all those employees, gone. And then the worst yet. This point where Job is, is, is hearing the account of all of this terrible stuff that has happened to his, to his, to his, his wealth. And a servant rushes in and, and tells him suddenly, a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. The, the older NIV says, it, it, it struck the young people and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. All of a sudden, the loss of the wealth is all put in perspective with the loss of all of those employees 
and especially in the loss of all of his blood, his children. And Job is shaken. And at this news, he gets up and he he tore his robe and he shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be what? Praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Well, chapter 2 comes around, brings the second round of tragedy on Job. Satan begins arguing with, with, with God again that, that Job will surely lose his faith in God and trust in God and confidence in God and will curse God to his face if you also take away his health. You see, you know, even though it's being presented as kind of this, 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 um, this bet between Satan and God, where Satan is really, you know, if you do this, you know, he really doesn't love you. You're, you're being blinded. You know, he's being blinded to your greatness and who you really are, God, because you've given him all this stuff. What's really happening is that, is that Satan is wanting Job to fail and to be destroyed by evil in order to discredit God. And God says Job will not lose his faith. And so Satan afflicts Job with boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. We cannot begin to imagine what that is. Boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. It is so pitiful. Job is so shaken that he takes a broken piece of pottery in order to scrape at himself while he is sitting in the ashes. Job is so out of his mind with grief and pain that he is cutting himself. He's he's lacerating himself. And his wife, in her grief, walks up upon Job and sees his disfigurement from the boils and the pain from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head and what he's doing to himself. And she says, why don't you just curse God and die? Get it over with. And it's about this time that the Bible tells us that three of his friends show up, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. And Job is in such disfigurement and in such grief and such pain, they do not recognize him. So great is his affliction. And chapter 3 begins with, with, with a cry of anguish, let perish the day I was born. And all of chapter 3 is really just an, an outpouring of the anguish and the crying and, and the grief of the tragedy that has fallen on him. And it is, it is personal and it is deep and it is earthy and it is, it is real and authentic. But by the time we get to chapter 4, things begin to change. And this brings us into the dialogues that happen in public. Chapters 4 through 37 consist really of a series of dialogues. It's really dialogical debates. It's, it's dialogues, but they're in debate. And it's between Job and his friends about what has really happened to him. And what we know they're giving him is really bad human advice. And there's not really enough time to go through all of the nuances. You need to read these chapters 4 through 37 for yourself. What I want to do is just kind of give you about a thousand, five thousand foot view of, of the essence of what these guys are saying to Job and how he responds. First, the view of Eliphaz. Chapters 4 and 5, 15 and 22. 
what Eliphaz basically is saying to Job is that you suffer because you deserve to suffer. You suffer because you deserve to suffer. At the, at the very beginning, he begins by trying to encourage Job. He says, you know, Job, others uh, have been really taken care of by you. I, I want to encourage you. I want to I help you. You have done such great things in lifting up people who have gone through these same kinds of painful moments and tragedies and afflictions. But then he kind of turns and he begins to rebuke Job for not practicing what he preaches. Job, why are you being so impatient in your suffering? And Job at one point is able to respond and say, do you not see or understand or feel or have any sensitivity about you to see what I'm going through? Patience? It says suffering, Job, your suffering is going to be short because you're righteous. But then he says, you know, Job, the problem is, really, that you think you're a pretty good guy, and because you're a pretty good guy, that you're a good man, that fact alone will keep you from grief and from suffering. Yet, Job, the truth is, you're a sinner, and you should expect to suffer. Look what he says in verses 6 and 7. Consider now, Job, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? Later, Eliphaz in all of these dialogues will question Job's statement that the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. He says, if that's true, then God can't be trusted. And since God has to be trusted, God has to be feared. The problem is with you, Job. This is just proof that you're a sinner. You're talking like a sinner. Verse uh, 4 and 5 of chapter 15, Eliphaz says, but you have undermined piety. And you're hindering devotion to God. You're saying that God can't be trusted. Your sin prompts your mouth. And then finally in chapter 22, Eliphaz is, is tired of being a nice guy to a guy in suffering. And he contradicts himself by saying, Job, the reason you're suffering is you're really getting what you deserve because this is what you have given to everyone else. And he completely contradicts what he said at the beginning of chapter 4. Job, you were a help to all of the widows and those that needed water, so on and so forth. You suffer because you deserve to suffer. Then there's the view of Bildad. Chapter 8, chapter 18, chapter 25 basically make up this, this part of the dialogue. It can be summarized as this. God blesses the righteous and curses the wicked, and no man is righteous. God blesses the righteous and curses the wicked, and no man is righteous. The implication is everyone is a sinner, so they will suffer. Job chapter 8, verse 20. Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. And then there's the view of Zophar, chapter 11, chapter 20. And you can summarize really what Zophar is saying as, be happy it wasn't worse. Job chapter 11, verse 6, know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. You know, you have the view of Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar. At the end of the book, all three of these men are rebuked by God for not speaking wisely or accurately about God. They haven't spoken truthfully or honestly or, or accurately about God or God's ways or God's wisdom. Now, if we were to step out of jail for just a minute and talk about ourselves, we would, I think, have to admit that we do the same thing today. Somebody's in suffering, a loss, and we say, you know what, just think. Someone else has it worse than you. Stop saying that. 
It does not help. In fact, it's, it's, it's horrible theology. To think that the way that I make it out of the suffering and the, the pain and the grief is that somebody has to have it worse. Is that Christian? And think about how it is that we pray along these lines. I'm here in my suffering, and the only way that I'm going to escape it is by hoping that somebody is in a pit deeper than I am. And that person's not going to make it out unless there's a person in a pit deeper than them, and, then, uh, and so on and so on. And all of a sudden, our prayer life is downward. Rather than lifting people up, it's downward. And really... It's, it's going to be the presence of somebody else's pain that's going to make you feel better about what's going in your life, that they have it worse, rather than the greatness of the presence of God in your life? Stop saying, just think, someone else has it worse than you. Another one, I guess God needed that person more than you. Stop saying that. Are we really saying that God is so needy and because He's powerful, He can be a bully and take something from you that He needs and causes affliction on you because He's needy? Is that Christian? I guess God needed that person more than you, so God ripped him out. Most people that hear that say, didn't God know that I needed that as well? Or God needed another angel. First of all, human beings never become angels. But beyond that, God didn't take that loved one or take that, that person from you because He needed an angel. The Bible in His witness says that God has myriad angels, countless angels, and He needed one more, so He took that. Stop saying it. Job 42, verse 7 God speaks to Eliphaz and says, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me. As my servant Job has. Uh, in that last phrase, as Job has, in Hebrew that word as means that it's a relative evaluation. God's not saying that everything that Job has said is necessarily right, but he is going in the direction of truth. Which now brings us to the view of Job. And again, not everything that he says is, is 100% right, but the view of Job is basically we live our life before God. In all of his emotions, in all of his, and, and the suffering, uh, in all of his emotions that his suffering entails, even the neg negative ones, when, when nothing in his life is making sense, Job is still pursuing God. Even when he seeks to justify himself and say that he does not deserve to, to suffer like this, he is still speaking to God and will not let go. Even when his shallow perceptions of God are being sorely tested, he hangs on. For Job, nothing in this world makes sense, let alone the suffering makes sense without the presence of God. And even when he wishes God would leave him alone, he is still working hard to make sense of a God-saturated world. And in one of the climactic points, Job says in chapter 13, verse 15, Though He slay me, I will what? Even though He slay me, I will what, church? Hope in Him. 
Now, it does get a little bit dicey in chapter 27, and I think that that adds to the authenticity of the book and the realism of the book. Most of the scholars, by the time you get to chapter 27, are, are struggling a little bit with the interpretation. Some say, Job could never have said what he says in chapter 27, so it's really got to be maybe the end of what Zophar is saying to him, because it looked like Job is beginning to buy in to the theology, the bad theology of his friends. Other scholars are saying, you know what he's doing there? He's just sort of being dismissive when he talks about it. He's, you know, he's being sarcastic with it, dismissive with it. You know what I think? Because of the suffering and the, the, the profundity of the suffering that he's going through, Job is close to the edge. He is beginning to buy into the false stuff. But by the time you get to chapter, chapter 28, everything is turned around again because there is this epiphany. He begins talking about mining. He says, you know what? You look at the world and people are mining for gems and, and, and for, for precious metals and silver and gold and all of the, these kinds of things. And, and he says, you know what? Where can you go and mine for wisdom? And where can you go and even buy wisdom with silver and gold? He says, wisdom does not come. To understand how the earth works and everything around. It, it doesn't come from nature itself or mining. It doesn't come from human endeavor. It comes because you're in the presence of God and you fear Him. This brings on Elihu. We don't really have time for Elihu. What we do have time for is to end with the view of God. Chapters 38 through 42. And to steal a line from, that Charles Swindoll used in talking about faith. The view of, of God that as it is presented here in these chapters is that man is man and nothing more. God is God and nothing less. Job has been all, all along, he's been asking for an audience with God and he finally gets one and God shows up and he speaks out of the whirlwind and he says at the beginning of this, this particular dialogue, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? And he begins to ask all these serious questions. He said, did God consult with Job at the creation of the world? Does, does Job command the dawn to take hold of the world? Does Job control the snow and the rain? Does Job lead the stars out each night? Does Job, Job know anything about the animal world, like wild donkeys? Or why an ostrich doesn't care for its young? Or why a stallion out of all of the animals is so brave? And all of these questions are to bring to bear in Job's mind that he cannot possibly understand, let alone know all that goes on in the vast universe. Man is man and nothing more. God is the only one powerful enough to create and to run the universe. But God doesn't stop right there. When you go to chapter 41, there's a creature mentioned. Leviathan. Which is kind of curious. I tend to think... That Leviathan is a reference to Satan. I don't think that the description of Leviathan is, is metaphorical and it's hugely exaggerated to, to kind of you know, make us think that he is such a ferocious animal, which he is, when all of the other animals are described realistically. Leviathan breathes fire and smoke comes out of his nostrils. What Leviathan is, is a dragon and an enemy. Job 3, Isaiah 27, Psalm 74. And it's also the way a dragon, the way that Revelation chapter 12 describes Satan. And I think the point here is that the created world and the invisible spiritual world are governed by God. And Job, like us, 
when suffering comes, looks for someone to blame for our pain, and we begin to think that that someone is God Himself. But true wisdom understands that the fear of the Lord, that is, to stand in worshipful awe and trust of His, His majesty, is the foundation of all of life. And when the curtain is pulled back and we see that it is Satan in the middle of the tragedy working hard to discredit God, he is for us that prowling lion of First Peter that is searching and looking for someone to devour. And in this case, it's Job. And yet, God says, he reigns over Satan. Job's no match. Humans are no match for Satan. But God is. And the book of Job does not answer all the questions we have about the presence of evil in the world, but reveals the God who knows what He's doing. And in essence, what God is saying is this, I will do what must be done to defeat Leviathan and all evil in the universe. And this requires suffering on the part of the righteous who will trust me even though mystery shrouds the reason from humans for a time. And the question comes down, do we trust Him? The worst thing that you can ever say to somebody, a spouse or somebody that you're absolutely close to, is that I know you, but I don't trust you. And every time we say to God, we know you, but we don't trust you, we're giving God a vote of no confidence. We're black falling God. And the wisdom of Job is you may not get all of the questions answered, but will you remain trustfully faithful to God even when there's no reason to do so? Well, that brings us to the epilogue in the close. The wisdom of the book of Job cuts across conventional wisdom in the Western world, our world, where we try to become our own hybrid superheroes. And we think that the information, and with a little bit of time, and with some human ingenuity, will produce solutions. But Western world conventional human wisdom fails us in this regard. Job doesn't give any answers. He's never let in on what happens behind the scenes in the heavenlies in chapters 1 and 2. What Job does get is a gigantic dose of the presence of God. And Job says at the end, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Then a couple of verses later he says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And in the end, Job is blessed in even greater ways. These later blessings are not meant to take place of the, bless, of the children, of the things that were lost. These blessings are to stand alone. And at the end, Job is not forsaken by God, even though he suffers, but finds blessings that he could not ever imagine. Because he was faithful. He receives a new life that he could never imagine. He lives to be 140 years old. When at one point he thought that was not possible. He sees children to the fourth generation. And the book ends saying that he dies an old man full of years. But there's an even greater hope 
than the one that we're left with in the Old Testament when we come to the life of Christ. A greater hope becomes, comes to us because of a greater Job who comes. Centuries later, another righteous man of whom it could be said that there was no one on the earth like him, blameless and upright and fearing God and shuns evil, that righteous man appeared. And although the most righteous man he was who ever lived and was without sin, he suffered according to Scripture. And he was rejected by his friends who did not understand his suffering. But unlike Job, he was not spared, but died. And the mystery of his death is foolishness to conventional human wisdom, but becomes great wisdom and power to those who trust God. And in his death is the death of death itself and all evil. And in his newness of life, which he shares with everyone. He shares a life that is void of evil's infections and even evil itself. And it's not just new life, but it's new life forever. In a place where human beings are restored, what would you look like if you lived in a place where there was no suffering? A place where no one dies where no one suffers, where no one hurts. Jesus is that greater Job. Jesus is that greater Job who offers to us not a way out of the suffering, contrary to what many teach as biblical, but He teaches a way through the suffering and through the evil. And through all of the effects of sin and the thorns and the thistles in the world that have not just gone into the world, but have gone into us. A way right through it to life everlasting with Him. And not just the, the renewal of all things, but restoration. And it comes in trusting Him. Trusting Him with your life. Trusting Him to, to, to order your steps to to order your life, to have a will for your life that you're willing to obey, uh, to, to have a presence in your life that you're no longer going to be moving away from, but moving towards in this little thing called repentance. It's a life that He has offered you through baptism where all of your sins are washed away and His Spirit is put in you. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. If this life is the one that you've been seeking all your life, or if there are other ways that our church can help you through maybe your own suffering, your own tragedy, your own pain, your own grief. Our shepherds, our spiritual leaders are going to be down here at the front. What we would love more than anything else is to minister to you in this way this morning. And what we invite you to do is come down to the front and to talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together. Deeper than the ocean and wider